right, Luke 9, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's read through the chapter, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in and um, kind of break it down a little bit. So. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. A desert. (laughs) Desert. Just want to keep saying desert for some reason. We are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke, uh, blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And it happened. As he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds who who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered, and they said, John the Baptist. But some? Some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ, the Messiah of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here and let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Mo, and one for Elijah. Mo is his nickname. Uh, not, Not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. And it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words, let these words sink down into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They didn't understand the saying that was hidden from them so that they didn't perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> then a, a dispute ro- arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest, would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set, set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For... He who is least among you, he who is least among you all will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said, Don't, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. And that came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But um, they didn't receive him because his face for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them. And he said, "You you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. For, for the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, 
I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit, is ready for the kingdom of God. (laughs) Some wonderfully difficult sayings there at the end. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we pray because it's to you that we come, not simply to um, pages, uh, letters written in a book. It's to you, the living Lord, living God. It's to you that we pray because we we must have your help. If we are to, to come to know you, and to enjoy what it means to live in your kingdom. A kingdom full of righteousness and joy and peace. Then it must be you who does it. It must be you who brings this to us. Not through the manipulation of our emotions. not through human wisdom or rhetoric. But only you, the true, living, real God, working something deeply into us that we cannot fake. Lord, that is what we want. We want you. Would you breathe your life in us by your Spirit, my Father, in that particular way that only you can? Oh, refine and change and correct and heal us, I pray. Please, please would you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys. Let's look back at uh, the beginning of chapter 9. All right. How much time do we have? We have plenty of time. We got this. <laughs> Maybe. We got this, maybe. Sure. <laughs> All right, Luke 9, beginning in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together. He had already named them. We've gone over that already. He called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I just want to mention really, really, very briefly about that first part. I like that it's uh, mentioned, both things are mentioned kind of separately, um, that uh, he gave them power over demons and to cure diseases, because for some reason there can be in some people's minds this attitude that thinks that behind every bad thing is some particular demonic spirit, or behind every disease, or behind every illness, or whatever. I, I just think that, that that's an unwise and really, really unbiblical way to view things. So uh, the reality is that we live in a fallen world with uh, lots of uh, germs and, and uh, other fun uh, microbial things. So um, they certainly can affect our bodies, right? So uh, while I certainly acknowledge that supernatural realm uh, that is attested to us by the scriptures and the, the authority and power of demonic influences and forces, I think that it's unwise to 
suggest or to blame every evil or bad or thing that we think is not okay or not good on some particular demonic entity. Anyways, moving on. He gave them authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. This is a particular ministry as Jesus is. I want to remind you guys of this. He's going to do this with the 12, and then later on, we're going to get to it in the next chapter, he's going to send 70 disciples out, right? So right now he's doing the 12. After this, he's going to send 70 disciples out, and they're going throughout the cities of Israel um, announcing the kingdom of God, right? This is all leading up to essentially kind of his presentation to the nation as their Messiah at what you and I know as the crucifixion, right? When the nation itself says, we will not have this man rule over us regardless of all the other things that, uh, that had been told to them and the things they had seen and heard. Okay? So this is leading us in that direction. Uh, that's why uh, Luke includes that information for us. So anyways, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God, to announce the kingdom of God, and to heal uh, the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor, uh, listen to that, neither staffs, that's plural, you got that? <laughs> Don't take more than one staff. Get like a walking stick, you're good. Just, just take one, don't take multiple uh, walking sticks. Uh, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't take all this extra stuff and don't have two tunics apiece. I think the, the point here is that Jesus is saying to them, I want you to be dependent. Uh, as you're going into the cities, I want you to be relying on the hospitality of the people there, which was a normal thing anyways, uh, that they should have relied on the hospitality of, of the uh, surrounding communities. But what this would also be for them is an opportunity for them to depend on the Lord. Jesus sends them out. Are they going to trust that he's going to provide for them as they're going throughout these different cities, announcing the kingdom of God? What would, what would happen if someone rejects their message? Of course, that's what's going to happen uh, to some of them. But um, He says this, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. The idea is don't be like house jumping. If you like go to a city and somebody invites you into their home, again, very culturally normal. This is how hospitality would work. The word hospitality means to love strangers. So this is a very uh, culturally common thing. Somebody receives you into their house to stay when you go to that city. Don't like look around for like a better place to stay. Right? That might be our normal thing to do, right? We'd be like, somebody has a better crib. I'm going to go over to their place and go hang out with them, right? Uh, Jesus is like, somebody welcomes you into their home. Just stay there. And when you leave the city, depart from there. That's the idea. Verse 5. And whoever will not receive you, here's what they are to do if they go to a city and they are not received in the city. Whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And I've heard that uh, in a very similar fashion that the Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes uh, will do this. If they go to a property a person's house and they knock on your door and you kind of reject their message that when they leave, they might shake the dust off their feet when they're leaving your property uh, as sort of from this particular thing. Um, my understanding is that this was something that uh, that some of the uh, Jewish leaders would do, particularly if they pass through the area of Samaria or a Gentile area, right? So if they go to a Gentile area or Samaria, which is, if you're imagining this little strip of land, Palestine, Israel, in your mind, the top part is Galilee, the bottom sort of region uh, we commonly refer to as Judea, where the city of Jerusalem is, and the middle part of that is this sort of swath of land called Samaria, where the Samaritans are. But they were considered sort of Halflings by uh, the, the how, I don't know how else to say it other than pure Jews, right? So they would be considered sort of halflings. And so uh, the religious leaders would frequently, if they were going from uh, Judea up to the area of Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, they would go around Samaria rather than go through it because they hated Samaritans. Okay? They wouldn't even go through it. If for some reason they had to go through it, 
uh, the idea is that they would then shake the dust off of their feet because they were like, you keep your, your dust there in your land, right? Like, we don't want that even going into this room, right? Uh, is sort of the, um, the idea there. So Jesus now is using this, again, culturally common thing uh, that was already being done. He's using it now as a testimony to, now he's sending them to Jewish cities. Can you imagine that? All the Jews know this is the thing that the Jewish leaders do when they go through Gentile land, which is non-Jewish area, or when they go through the Samaritan land, they shake the dust off their feet because they're like, Samaria is gross. It's kind of the way they're saying that, right? Now Jesus is using this as a way for them, even if they're going, they go to these Jewish cities now. Do you imagine in the mind of these Jewish people, they're like, wait a minute, why are they shaking the dust off their feet? This is, this is a Jewish town, right? These guys are Jews telling us about Jewish Messiah, the kingdom of God, you know? Yeah, the whole point was to get their attention, Right? It's to get them to pay to get to get them to pay attention to what's happening here. So, uh, eventually, uh, as we've mentioned before, Jesus would pronounce judgment on the nation itself because of the rejection of the re- religious leaders of of his ministry. They would say that the, the reason why he was doing the things that he was doing was by the power of Beelzebub, right? the power of of the devil, essentially. So, um, Jesus said, "All manner of sin will be forgiven. All men." blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And he said that specifically related to the religious leaders when they attributed his ministry to the power of the devil rather than the God's spirit. So, um, uh, continuing on. Uh, he said, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel. Remember the word gospel means good news. Preaching this good news of God's kingdom. God's kingdom being at hand or within reach. Uh, and going back to, I want to read to you really quickly what this kingdom looks like uh, from some of Jesus' message here in Luke 6. He says this, he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men, when men hate you, when they uh, exclude you and revile you and cast you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And then he gives warnings. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did their fathers to the false prophets. That's just a a short little snippet there in Luke chapter 6 of some of the things Jesus taught about his kingdom. And the reason I want to bring it up is to remind you that the kingdom really was good news for the common people. Right? Okay? When Jesus comes to your town, he brings his message of his kingdom, where he's like, "Blessed are you poor." <laughs> cool. I mean, we don't have to like get rich in order to be blessed by God, right? But that would have been the common like mentality. It was like, if you're blessed by God, that means you're going to be rich, right? Or you're going to be like healthy. Or you're not going to be hungry. Or you're not going to be all those things. But Jesus came, showing us that his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world that elevate all of those things. But his kingdom is quite different. He says, no, 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 you can, you can in fact be blessed even, even when you're poor, even when you're hungry. In fact, it's uh, quite the opposite. <laughs> Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. That's, that's hard to hear, but he also warned and said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter his kingdom. This indeed was good news to, to the common people, uh, but it was also incredibly disruptive to the social order. It was disruptive to the religious order of the day. And uh, I, I, 
I guess maybe to make up a word, the religio-political order, because there was this combination. It was not, uh, it was not uncommon, uh, not by any means, uh, for uh, religion and state to be linked together, for religious views and state to be uh, linked together and completely interwoven throughout most uh, historical cultures. Um, this idea of separation of those things uh, that, that you and I have come to, uh, come to uh, understand uh, is, is actually relatively new in history. So, uh, anyways, so continuing on, uh, they brought the gospel, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed uh, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Right? So like they're hearing about all this stuff happening, they're hearing about all this ministry, all these people being healed, all these miracles happening. Uh, they know there's some itinerant rabbi going around. Uh, he's been confronted on uh, several occasions. But now Herod, uh, who was an, an Idumean, uh, a descendant of, of Edom, uh, he is in, uh, in power because of Rome. And uh, he is wondering if this is John that he beheaded. It was said by some, rather, that... Uh, John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. So this ministry apparently was making an impact uh, with this political leader in a particular way, so that uh, all these people are wondering who this particular person is. So Herod said this, verse 9, Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. John, he's like, wait a minute, some people are saying this is John, but I killed him, right? Like, I had his head cut off. Uh, other people are saying this is Elijah or one of the other old prophets. Uh, at this point, Herod is at this uh, place where he's wanting to know who this particular person is. Uh, but that day will come. We'll see that later on in the story. That day will come uh, when uh, he gets to see Jesus face to face. So he sought to see him. Verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. This was common. Crowds of people, whenever they heard wherever Jesus was going at this particular time of his ministry, they would frequently try to catch up with him uh, wherever he was headed. And I don't blame them. I mean, there were all, the, all of these stories about all of these, these miracles. He'd already brought several people, uh, children, back from the dead. Uh, he had uh, done... Uh, wonderful, incredible miracles. He's, he's presenting this message of God's kingdom and demonstrating God's kingdom with power. And so they want to be around him. It just makes sense to me. But continuing, he took them, he went aside privately in a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the multitudes knew, verse 11, as we read, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are, for we are in a deserted place here. So they're out in a deserted place. The multitudes come to him. He's serving them, doing ministry, teaching them. And it's getting late. So his disciples are like, Lord, send them, send them away. <laughs> like, go ahead and dismiss them. Like, be like, you're dismissed. I know that's the moment everyone waits for, like Sunday, you know, you're dismissed, right? Uh, the disciples are like, just let them go, you know, let them go so they can find a place to stay, lodging, and find some food to eat. And Jesus says, the moment, why did he do this, <laughs> right? Like, his response, he said to them, you give them something to eat. 
And their their response to Jesus' statement is, I mean, I think it's reasonable. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. Uh, one of the things I think is important to point out is that we don't know exactly how many people were there. We just know that the, the record says for us there's about 5,000 men, so uh, we don't know how many women or how many children there may have been there. Um, what we do know is that it's a lot of people, right? <laughs> Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And their response is, I think, I, I really just think that's a normal way for them to respond. They're like, Lord, we just don't have very much. We only have this little bit of stuff, five loaves and two fish, unless, of course, we go and we buy food uh, for everyone. Now, Jesus, Jesus is going to give them some particular instructions about how they are to facilitate uh, this particular miracle. Um, and we're going to see uh, the way that he does it. Um, it. It's in Jesus' hands that somehow this miracle takes place. Um, but I want to bring our attention back to this idea that faith without works is dead. Um, as it relates to being able to respond to Jesus in a way that I think is maybe more positive, uh, whenever he says, you give them something to eat, right? Um, whatever that looks like in our particular situation, where we have opportunities to serve and where we have opportunities to share. And Jesus says, you, you do. This is where um, faith really meets uh, the reality of life. Uh, and James brings it up. I want to read, uh, read that passage from James uh, in just a minute here. But Jesus gives very particular instructions about what they're to do. I think in the very bottom of this, uh, the reality is uh, they are learning to be dependent on him. If Jesus gave them a command to do something, it's important that they learn to just obey what he says. If Jesus has told you to do something, just do whatever he says. Rely on him. And this is an opportunity for them to do that, though it seems incredibly unlikely. Frankly, it's impossible, right? They're like, Lord, there's 5,000 people, and all, all we have here are five loaves of bread and two fish. And they're to be dependent on him. Here's his instruction. There are about 5,000 men, as we read. Then he said to his disciples, continuing in verse 14, then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. Right? So maybe these little huddles of 50 people sitting down, there's a hundred groups of 50, at least men, right? <laughs> if they're divided evenly that way amongst the men. Then he took the five loaves, uh, oh, verse 16, and they did so, and they made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. And he gave them to the disciples to set them before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets uh, of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. I think that um, this is one of those stories that, uh, for me, it's very easy to, to just run through very quickly. I, I grew up hearing this particular story amongst the other one. There are two particular times where Jesus fed multitudes similar to this. One, the people numbered are about 4,000 men. This particular instance is a different group where there's about 5,000 men mentioned. This is another time where it happens. But even in something as simple as this, this is an opportunity for them to learn to be dependent on the Lord, even with limited resources. 
really is nothing, nothing short of that. But the direction of this isn't even about their own having enough for them. It's not about the disciples having enough for themselves. It's about them having enough to serve, having enough to help, having enough to give, to share with others. Not only when this event was over, not only um, were they able to feed the 5,000, however, whatever the the final number was, um, but they even had 12 baskets left over from five loaves and two fish. Um, I have never, I've never done this. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have. (laughs) I've never done this. Um, But what I do know is that in a similar way, the Lord is asking me moment by moment to depend on him regardless of what it seems like things look like. And this is where, in, in a very direct way, we cross the line, if I could say it that way, from... Uh, from something that is rational to something that is frankly based in faith based in believing his word Um, in uh, in James read this about what it means to walk in faith and I think this is uh, this is where I want um, the, this idea uh, maybe to, to find its root in us. What does it mean to, to, to trust the Lord, particularly as it relates to helping others? Um, <clears throat> so, uh, James says in James 2, uh, what is a prophet? What benefit is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can faith save him? See, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. <laughs> you imagine that, right? Just, the Lord bless you. I know you're hungry and you don't need clothes, but God bless you. you know? Just go in peace. Yeah. But uh, you don't... Uh, you don't give them the things which are needed for the body. What is a prophet? What what help were you? <laughs> it's making sense. Um, Thus also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And then he goes on to continue to talk about that relationship between faith and works. The reality of, of um, believing something uh, being rooted in what we do in our actions. particularly as it relates to that example that uh, James gives. If somebody comes and they're hungry, they need food today, and they need clothes, and we just say, oh, I trust that God will provide for you. (laughs) It is amazing to me, and frankly, no test of faith at all, to say that I will trust God that he'll provide for you. I think that what James is bringing us to is a place where we can say, if I trust the Lord, if I have faith in him, that he will provide the things that I need, then I can take what I have and I can share it, I can give it away. Because then the the onus or the demonstration of God's provision isn't that God has to take care of you now, and I believe God's going to take care of you, but now instead, if I give away what I have, now 
my faith is demonstrated because this is me saying, I am going to have to trust that God's going to provide <coughs> for me because I took what I had and I gave it away. So that means now, God, I need you. Please provide for me. <laughs> Meet me in this. So then this idea of believing God, of trusting him for something as simple as food or clothing, uh, which are things that Jesus said we ought to be able to trust the Lord for. Um, and we, we shouldn't be worried about. Those are things that he's promised um, to provide for us when we put his kingdom first. Um, in this particular place, my faith is demonstrated as to what as to its sincerity, not if I believe that God will provide for you by saying, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but it's that if I give you the things that you need, because now I'm the one who has to trust the Lord. I have to trust that God will continue to provide for me. Um, it's very easy for me to say, oh, <coughs> don't worry about the difficult thing you're going through. God will, God will provide for you. Right? God will take care of you. It's really easy for me to say that about you, right? But when you're the one who, who has need or lack, that's where, where faith, I think, in a lot of ways, where my trust in the Lord, my confidence in Him, whether or not I believe Him, uh, where the rubber meets the road. Do I believe that God will provide for me? Do I believe so much that I'm willing to share so that others can have the things that they need? Um, I think that James um, illustrates this idea of faith without works being dead. or In a lot of ways, the idea is that it's useless. It's not um, real. It certainly isn't helpful. And he says that. What does it profit? What benefit is that to the guy who doesn't have any food and clothes for you to say, depart in peace, be warmed and filled? What help were you to them? So, I think that uh, uh, this feeding of the 5,000 is another demonstration of that, where uh, the disciples have an opportunity. Jesus just says, you, you provide for them. And they're like, well, we don't have them. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Keep in mind that one of the main things Jesus is doing in this part of his ministry is he's revealing, gradually revealing, uh, to the disciples and to others um, who he is as the Messiah. Now verse 18. It happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them. Oh, as a footnote, did you see that? As he was alone praying, it just like, Luke just like throws it in there. Like, I think it's good for you to <laughs> make sure that Praying is it's a normal, common practice of following Jesus. Jesus was alone praying, and his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered. And they said, John the Baptist. Some of the people in the crowd said that he was J the B. Uh, that's John the Baptist's rap name. He dropped a pretty dope album. Sorry. They answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. Uh, interestingly, it's the same sort of group that uh, uh, was being told to Herod. These are what people, these are the common ideas that people had about who Jesus is. That he was John the Baptist, that he was Elijah, or that he was uh, one of the other older prophets. Uh, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Jesus now asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? Not what is everybody else saying, but who do you say that I am? At the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this question must be answered in the heart of every person that claims to follow him. 
if you are in fact following him, this is a central tenet of what that means. Who do you say that he is? Even in Islam, Jesus is viewed as a one of God's prophets. <coughs> but he is not the unique son of God. He is not the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Islam. And so Jesus asks, uh, and that view among others, uh, there are plenty of people who say, oh, Jesus is a great philosophical teacher or a great uh, instructor of like the way of, of whatever. You know? and he helps us understand the Christ consciousness and all of these other uh, sorts of ideas. Uh, but uh, this central question, who do you say that I am, he says, I think is so vital and important. Peter answered, rightly, uh, you are the Messiah of God. Remember, Christ is uh, from the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is just a Hebrew um, transliterated version. It means someone who has been anointed by God. So, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Messiah of God. You are the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. (laughs) Not exactly what you'd expect, right? He's like, yes, you're the Messiah of God. And Peter was right in his pronouncement. And now Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody. (laughs) There's a particular time frame that is being worked out here. And it seems to me that frequently Jesus is aware of this reality. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is one of several occasions where Jesus is going to tell the disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to rise on the third day. Then he said to them all, verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, at the very center again of what it means to be a Christian I think it's important that we find ourselves in a place where we can say being a Christian means being a person who follows Jesus if I'm a Christian it means I'm a person who's following Jesus but then what do we do with statements like this Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, if you want to follow after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, We have a very immunized view of the cross because we've seen it for years and years and years in our artwork and we hang it around our neck and we put it in our earrings, right? So we have a very... Um, inert sometimes view of the cross. If, uh, as it was in the first century, if the cross uh, itself was seen as the place of execution of criminals, (laughs) to hear this master, this teacher say, if you want to follow me, you come and you take up your cross daily. Be like saying, you know, come and take up old Sparky daily, you know, the electric chair, whatever. Like, this is what the cross is. It's the place where, where criminals died. Now, they don't understand or know yet that this is where he's going, <laughs> that he's going to be hung on a cross. I think that this understanding certainly would have come later, obviously after the fact. 
If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Um, without going too far into it, I think that for many of us it's obvious that we live in a time period where one of the, um, frankly, one of the central ideas floating around throughout our society is um, the idea of um, learning our identity or, or obtaining or finding or presenting ourselves with a particular identity. Uh, however, we, um, uh, whatever particular parts of that identity we want to define in a particular way, whether it's related to uh, sexuality or to race uh, or to gender uh, or to, uh, to other types of things. But we live in a time where um, finding out and then showing yourself to people as a particular <laughs> uh, I think that it's static electricity building up. Anyway, so uh, we live in a time period where um, uh, frankly it, it's weird because it's like trying to find a particular label and then you, you just sort of try to your best to live within whatever whatever label you give yourself, you know. Um, but I think no matter where you fall, no matter what the, the places are where you try to give yourself some particular identity. If you want to follow Jesus, I think that his statement here um, supersedes all of that. Because however you define yourself, he says to you, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The common view and, and thesis about what it means to live in absolute happiness now seems to be to find whatever the identity is that, that you think is yours and then live in that. Do whatever it takes to, to do that because then you'll truly be happy. But Jesus says that his kingdom is quite different. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. It doesn't matter what that particular thing is. Let him deny himself, take up his cross place where you die. The cross was an instrument of death. Let him take this cross daily and follow me. Now, that sounds pretty dreary. <laughs> then, that sounds uh, pretty sad, but the uh, other side of this I think is vital and important. He continues, verse 24, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's the, the exchange. That's where it happens. In God's kingdom, um, the thing that it looks like is, is not helpful or good. Denying yourself. Taking up your cross daily. The thing that it looks like is just killing you, Jesus said. If you lose your life, <coughs> then you'll find it. But whoever desires to save his life will lose it. The only real issue is whether or not I believe the words of Jesus. That's really what it comes down to. And frankly, most people don't. I don't know if you're aware of this yet. <laughs> most people just don't really want to hear the words of Jesus, nor do they actually believe them even when they do. And the challenge for me is I, as I want to, to follow this Messiah is to decide whether or not I believe him. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? What benefit is it to you 
if you live in whatever identity you've created for yourself and you think you're happy, only to be lost and destroyed at the end. Is that really, really helpful? What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. I want you to get this link. He's saying some of you guys standing right here aren't even going to die until you see the kingdom of God, what it's really like, this, the glory of God's kingdom. Now he continues. It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they had like little name tags, like one's Moses and one's Elijah. <laughs> they, uh, they were there. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Uh, before I read that line. I want to just mention to you this from Second uh, Peter. This had such an impact on Peter uh, that later on he writes in one of his letters, um, he says this, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables. We did not follow cunningly devised fables. By the way, which is one of the criticisms people level against Christians. Like, you guys are just following these, cu- these tricky tales that were made up. Nope. In fact, Peter, who was an eyewitness of these things, specifically says, we're not doing that. <laughs> He's like, I, I saw this stuff. I'm just telling you what I saw. Um, we did not follow cunningly devised fables, and we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This had an impact on Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, listen, guys, it's, it's unbelievable. But then he says this, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation the prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is, by the way, Peter's confidence in the writings themselves, in, in the, the things that were written concerning the Messiah. So, um, It's rooted in, in uh, what this event is that uh, we read here in Luke chapter 9. I want to get back to that part that we were just reading, though, of Luke chapter 9, uh, so that we can finish up pretty quickly here. Um, he appeared... Uh, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. <laughs> his decease. So the word there literally is departure. Uh, we might think of it as the word decease or death, right? Maybe of dying. His departure, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Um, but I want you to, to listen to that turn of phrase. His departure, his death, his decease, that he is about to In fact, Jesus' death on the cross was an accomplishment. He became uh, for us the payment for our sins, the just for the unjust. But often we don't view death as an accomplishment. (laughs) His death was. 
his death, which he was about to accomplish, Moses and Elijah, I think in a lot of ways representative of the law and the prophets, Elijah being one of the greatest of the prophets, Moses being uh, the giver of the law from Sinai, Moses and Elijah now talking with Jesus on this mountain about his departure, his uh, decease, which he's about to accomplish. Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. I can relate to Peter so much. I get so tired sometimes. They were heavy with sleep. <laughs> I think sometimes I get mad at myself because I'm like, oh, oh, I had such a hard time reading my Bible today, or oh, I didn't do as much as I wanted, or I didn't pray as much as I wanted, and now I'm tired and it's late, and you know, and I'm like passed out sleeping. And I'm like, listen, the disciples literally traveled around with Jesus as he was on the earth, and they still fell asleep around him. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> I, I think if nothing else, I can cut myself a little slack, maybe. <laughs> like, they were literally with the Messiah, and, and they still had trouble staying away. He's like, when he's in the garden, when he's about to be betrayed, they're like, hey, he says to them, hey, wait here and pray. And they keep falling asleep three times. They kept falling asleep. And every time he comes back and he's like, why are you guys sleeping? <laughs> you know. uh, anyways. Um, <laughs> but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, uh, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him. So Moses and Elijah are now leaving as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now one of the prophets says that Israel will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in the kingdom, perpetually, the Feast of Booths. And so I think that maybe Peter's statement here about them building these little tents is rooted in that a prophecy, possibly, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving too much credit to Peter. I don't know. Uh, but regardless, Peter's like, I don't even know what to say. Moses and Elijah are here, right? Elijah was the one carried away in a fiery chariot into the sky, into the sky, right? Moses is the one that they were fighting. He's fighting over his bones and all that stuff, you know, which we find out later. But uh, anyway, it's like, what? This is this is shocking. And Peter was shocked by it, which is to me reasonable. Um, so he says. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Uh, Some have suggested that this is sort of Peter almost putting all three of them on the same level. Like one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Like you guys are all on the same level here. I don't know if that's what he's implying. but um, Certainly he says this. Uh, The response is this. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. A voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son, hear him. If you didn't need if you don't hear anything else that I say today, if you forget everything else, please remember this. Read your Bible. There's so many voices competing for your attention and trying to tell you what they think is true. And they're all guessing. Hear him. This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. They kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. I mean, even if they had told anybody, who's going to believe that, right? Like, you guys wouldn't believe this. And they're like, nope, we don't believe that. That's crazy talk. 
he was like he started to glow, and then you saw Moses and Elijah. What are you, what are you guys talking about? Yeah. But later they did make known what had happened. So we have the record of it. Now it happened on the next day, verse 37, when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. This uh, lament that Jesus gives um, is, I mean, to me it sounds, um, I wouldn't want to hear Jesus say this, O faithless and perverse generation. But I also wonder how much emphasis or focus I'm putting on spiritual development in my own life. Um, as he was still coming, verse 42, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. One thing I do want to remind you of is that not everything seems to be rooted in uh, simply... This is where, where my trust has to come in. Um, empirical, observable science is rooted in what we can see only. The laws that govern scientific study are rooted only in the material world because that's all that we can observe. <laughs> this particular issue was related to a spiritual problem. The child was tormented by demon. We live in a, in a world, again, <laughs> um, um, where many have rejected outright the supernatural only on the grounds, uh, or maybe I should say um, particularly on the grounds uh, that um, such cannot be studied or measured as the rest of the material world around us is. But I do want you to see that the problem this child had wasn't just some physical problem. In this particular instance, and I must say, this doesn't mean that every instance is a de demon. Please remember that. <laughs> right? Sometimes uh, we live in a fallen world and your brain just messes up. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> and I'm thankful for medical advances. I'm so thankful for, for science. I'm so thankful for so many of the things that we can use to help each other. That God has given us that kind of wisdom and understanding about a world that is orderly, which I think that itself lends itself to the idea that God Himself is the one who, in fact, ordered it. Why are there, why are there laws that nature itself must obey? <laughs> why do they even exist so that we can know them? <clears throat> um, as I mentioned when we went through this story the last time. I just want to caution you about this. Um, don't, please be careful about outright dismissing everything as some supernatural spiritual thing. There may be the need for you to take some medication. <laughs> OK? 
okay? <laughs> also, don't immediately assume that that's the solution. That's the only solution that a secularized scientific world has. It is only a material solution because the idea of empirical science is rooted in the material world alone because that is what we can measure. <clears throat> uh, but these stories reveal to us that there is, in fact, a supernatural world. And this is the one that we either believe or we don't. <laughs> and there are many who don't. Let me make that clear. <laughs> there are many who just don't. So, sorry, continuing. Um, we got like three minutes. We can finish. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, they were all amazed at the majesty of God. Verse 43. Yeah. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. <laughs> what? While everybody else is marveling that Jesus cast out this demonic spirit and this child is healed, and everybody's like, God, you're amazing. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you let this sink down deep into your ears. <laughs> I can't help but be fascinated by the, the realism of this. He's like, guys, like, there may be like rejoicing now and all this emotion and all of this stuff as, as there should be, right? This child is healed, right? But it doesn't mean that everything is going to be that way all the time. One of the problems, I think, that one of the things I, I have always one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about American Christianity is that it seems like people want to view it as if everything is always some glorious ballad of whatever but the reality is that life isn't like that and, and following Jesus isn't like that sometimes it is like a, a funeral dirge because we experience death and loss and sorrow and heartache and heartbreak but we find in the bottom of it all that God is present with us that he's present to comfort and to heal, but there's a reality to that that, that is, it, it, it's not, it's not faked by our play acting at, at, at trying to be happy in a world that's full of chaos, which is, by the way, what it seems to, to me, which is my opinion, I think that's what most people are trying to do. We're just trying to play act at happiness in a fallen world of misery. but we all just keep dying. <laughs> so then, does it matter that Jesus says the one who lives and believes in me will never die? Or does it matter? I suppose it only matters whether or not I believe that. Do you believe this? He asked Mary and Martha, do you believe Um, last little bit here. 
um, they didn't understand the saying and it was hidden from them so they didn't perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. <laughs> they're like I'm not going to ask him you going to ask him? no I'm not going to ask him what does that even mean? he's going to be betrayed in the hands of man? like what? <laughs> the disciples are so relatable they're just these like normal guys you know <laughs> Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. <laughs> They're so normal. <laughs> of our group, which of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? Right? Like the greatest one in God's kingdom is literally standing in front of them. And they're like, which of us is going to be greatest? <laughs> uh, a dispute arose among them about which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and said by him, and said, then whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. This, this is what greatness is. I love that he uses, in particular, the marginalized group that we commonly know as children. We just treat children like they're nothing a lot of the time. Sometimes personally, sometimes as a society. not even getting into the issue of abortion or not. Though, obviously. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, just, just kill it. You know. uh, but even, even in a, a broader sense. And so Jesus brings a little child. Who receives this little child in my name receives me. Uh, I love this idea, particularly as it relates to, like, now that we're fostering children. I love this, right? Because it's like, what a cool example of that. Like, Lord, I'm just going to receive this little child in your name and just care for him, you know? Um, whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he was least among you all will be great. Greatness in God's kingdom isn't about making yourself last so that you can one day be seen as great. It's not a stepping stone. This idea of the least being great is not like this is the thing you, the stepping stone you use in order to obtain greatness. No, no. Greatness in God's kingdom is just just being last, just being the least, putting others above yourself. That is greatness. It's not a way to one day get to greatness. It's such a convoluted, like, twisted way to view things. <laughs> now, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he doesn't follow with us. <laughs> we told him, no, because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, don't forbid him, for he was not against us, is on our side. Uh, very quickly, uh, I see in this sort of what Paul writes about in Philippians, where he's like, some people preach Christ out of envy and selfish conceit and all of this stuff, uh, but he's like, I'm just happy Jesus' name is going out there. You know, it's like, I'm just happy that Jesus is being preached. Like, some people have false motives. Some people are, are, are telling the stuff about Jesus and, and, and sharing people, with people about what Jesus did for all these weird bad motives and stuff. But uh, Paul's like, I'm just glad people are hearing the name of Jesus. Right? Because even in the midst of that, interestingly enough, God can still use his name. And in fact, he does uh, do that very thing. So uh, don't forbidden, for he was not against us, is on our side. Now it came to pass, uh, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Oh, time came for him to be um, received up. 
steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem, that kind of determination. Now it's time for me to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. And that kind of determination in pursuing forgiveness, in, in pursuing reconciliation in relationships and amongst peoples, that kind of determinedness to do the will of God, I think is so vital and wonderful, and God produce it in us. Verse 52, and he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they didn't receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. You, you get the sense here of that en- the enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews in this village said, no, 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 we don't want Jesus coming to our village because he's going to Jerusalem. You know, when they were talking to them, they probably were like, hey, our master's on his way to Jerusalem. Can he come stay in your village? And they're like, no. Right? There's this enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews, and you sense that here. So uh, this, the disciples do the only reasonable thing they can do. Um, they didn't receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah, this is one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite stories about the disciples. Lord, do you want us to call down fire? You just imagine their eyes, you know, like, who do these guys think they are? Like, when did they ever do this before? You know, like, I mean, they had been given authority to heal. They had been given authority to cast out demons, right? That was part of what they were doing when they were going to the different cities in, in Israel, right? Jesus had given them that authority, and so now they're like way overstepping. They're like, shall we call down fire? And you can find that story uh, related in the life of Elijah, where uh, the king sent messengers to him, sent a commander of 50 with his 50 soldiers to him, and, uh, and, and they go to him, and he calls down fire, and the fire kills them, right? And then the king sends another group of 50, and he calls down fire again and kills them. And then the king sends another 50. And when you're this third guy, you've got to be, like, shaking in your boots, you know what I mean, by this point. So the guy comes, and he falls down before Elijah, and he's like, please have mercy on me, Elijah. And, uh, and he does, <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, but anyways, it's from that story that now James and John are like, shall we call down fire to consume them? <clears throat> but he turned and rebuked them and said, you, don't, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man didn't come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village, which is like the most reasonable thing to do. Just go somewhere else. Sometimes one of the difficulties and one of the troubles I think that we've been facing as a society is that we have become increasingly um, tribalized. Us versus them. Our group versus that group. And it's the natural outspring of identity politics that have been sort of pushed into us. Of course, if I'm this and you're not, then I'm going to la- attach more to my group than, you, than to your group or whatever. However, that is that we, we choose to define ourselves. It's the natural outcropping of that. Because we want to be on the in-group, or we want to be with people who are like us. And the tendency frequently can be uh, to view then others as the enemy, that we need to consume with fire. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let that be. Because it is not the way of Jesus. Whatever that other group is. If it's rooted in, in their 
skin color, in their sexual orientation, gender, whatever the groups are. Don't let it be. He came to save, not to destroy. God help us. He came to rescue sinners. But like the way politics works and the way media works, everybody's put in one camp against the other. I just don't think it needs to be that way in the church, guys. And they went to another village. Verse 57, it happened as they journeyed on the road. Someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. They're now traveling. This is what some random person traveling with them says. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to travel with him? You sure you want to follow Jesus? He doesn't guarantee everything that you think is guaranteed to you. Then he said to another, follow me. Now this is Jesus saying, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. She go and preach the kingdom of God. Some have been uh, wondered about this particular issue. There's been suggestions that the uh, issue here is that his father isn't dead yet, but he's saying, um, when my father dies, let me go and bury him. Problem is, that information isn't in the text, right? That's just how some people try to make sense of it, which is a weird, it's one of the things that we do sometimes, like we kind of add stuff, (laughs) because we're like, this makes more sense to me if we read it this way. I'm not sure that Jesus is trying to make us have an easy saying. I think that he's trying to say, following me is difficult. It's an entire commitment of, of all that you are. Let the dead bury their own dead. <laughs> but you go and preach, announce the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but uh, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit, is ready for the kingdom of God. People cycle. Like, are you coming with me or are you not? I'm not going to try and make these statements easier to hear. They just are what they are. And so I challenge you. <laughs> Will you follow Jesus? I encourage you to, because only he has the words of eternal life. (laughs) That's the promise. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm grateful for your patience toward us and for the patience of uh, all these people toward me. I pray that you would uh, speak to us your word and that we would be a people who are giving more attention to what you have said, God, than to... Uh, the uh, rhetorical machinations of our um, society. But I know that that takes shape. And because Jesus is your beloved Son, I want for us to be people who are hearing him. 
Thank you for my friends. Would you bless them? Thank you for the folks who are out this summer. Pray that you bless and encourage and strengthen them. Father, I want for us to be impressed with Jesus more than with anything else, really, so that we can know you as we see you in his face. Have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. I really appreciate your patience. I apologize uh, for taking a little bit uh, extra time this morning. It's a long chapter, so. <laughs> Chubby Tim's uh, quite a bit shorter.